Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. Guest today is Professor Richard Mamon, Professor in Engineering and Business at Rutgers University. He's a fellow of the National Academy of Inventors, a recipient of the Thomas Edison Patent Award, and an inductee of the New Jersey Inventors Hall of Fame. He has published over 200 papers and has 30 patents. He was a founding editorial board member of the IEEE Neural Network Society and was Associate Vice President of Innovation and Partnerships of Rutgers. Welcome, Rick. Thank you, Gil. Uh, I want to start with uh, your 2016 paper, uh, Decision Quality Support in Diagnostic Breast Ultrasound Through Artificial Intelligence, where uh, I believe you showed that it's better than human interpretations. And uh, medical ultrasonography uh, is an alternative to mammography, but um, I guess it has a lot of variability in terms of interpreting the results. Um, can you can you uh, talk a little bit about uh, the data that you used and um, what what the motivation was for the study and ultimately what the conclusions were? Oh, sure. So um, I'm going to go even a little bit further back to about 2011 when I first started and the, uh, with this whole idea. And basically mammography is the gold standard for screening uh, breast cancer. So there's about 40 million uh, mammograms taken every year in this country. And um, it's pretty uh, well established that this, this helps reduce the number of uh, deaths uh, in, in this country from breast cancer. Yeah. And um, so the the, uh, the the problem is that mammogram machines are pretty expensive. Uh, you have to have uh, experts who can manage them. And the idea is, was that in the developing world, in uh, low and middle income countries, there's very far fewer uh, mammographers and mammography machines, and it's just too expensive. Yeah. And what, what became apparent to me and to others is that ultrasound was actually a viable option to mammography. Mm -hmm. So right now, ultrasound is used after mammography. So typically what happens is um, after a mammogram, you know, if, if it looks fine, then, then that's the end of it. If, uh, if there's a cancer, then you go to the cancer. But if it's sort of in the middle, if there's a lesion and you're not really sure, then you, you could go to ultrasound. Yeah. And, um, so the ultrasounds are used, but they're, they're used primarily for that narrow, uh, you know, uh, part of the, the process. And what happened was uh, some studies started showing that you can actually detect some of the most um, dangerous cancers and you could detect them very early. And what's evolved over the years is that uh, due to dense uh, breasts, due to the material being uh, difficult for x-rays to get through, the mammography actually has some weaknesses and uh, ultrasound goes through those by, by seeing uh, through the dense tissue and finding these uh, cancers, especially for young women 
and uh, different uh, ethnicities have more, uh, you know, in Asia and in different yeah. countries. So uh, what I started studying back then was what about using an ultrasound is much lower cost. So an ultrasound device uh, you can get and put it onto your smartphone or onto your iPad or computer and maybe, you know, for under a thousand dollars. Whereas a uh, you know full blown ultrasound might be a hundred thousand dollars, and a mammogram machine might be several hundred or a million dollars. So, the idea was to get these into the hands of people all, all over. And eventually, uh, honestly, my ultimate goal was to get it to be a consumer device that you would get maybe a couple hundred dollar device that a woman could do at home, and uh, just put it on their smartphone and do self breast exams themselves. So if we are using ultrasound as sort of the second uh, mode of diagnosis after mammogram, and if ultrasound is better, why do we use mammogram at all? Well, that's uh, controversial. It's, it's historical. Uh, mammogram started, and they, they're the gold standard. They're the standard of care. So that's mm. the accepted practice. Um, as you know, the, the, the way that the FDA and the way the medical profession works is you have to have many, many studies over many, many years, and you have to statistically prove that something, uh, you know, is uh, efficient and yeah. uh, safe. So that's been done. It's we're uh, slowly, uh, because of the dense breast issue, mm -hmm. people are starting to look at using ultrasounds as a screening device. So there's a whole bunch of uh, terminology, and I'll try to, you know, yeah. get, get around to it. But um, to do screen, screening means you don't show any symptoms. So in order to be a screening device, only mammograms are approved. Diagnostic device means you have some symptom. So in other words, if you had a bump, then you could use, uh, you know, uh, ultrasound. If you had uh, some discoloration of your nipple or, if, you know, there's some indicator. Yeah. If you had a mammogram and the mammogram was suspicious, then you could have an ultrasound. But right now, the way the standard of care works is you can't go right to ultrasound. Now, because of dense breasts, there's an exclusion in most states, and it's working through the legal process that if you have dense breasts, then mammogram doesn't work so as well, you know, uh, at all. I mean, because when you have dense breasts, what happens is the ultrasound, everything looks white. So you're looking for a little white chip of calcium inside a sea of white, and it's yes. just not going to be, you know, a good thing. So the ultrasound doesn't have that problem. So ultrasound is slowly working its way. Uh, to becoming part of the standard of care as a screening device, not just a diagnostic device. And anticipating that, uh, you know, 10 years ago, basically, uh, I, I thought it was going to happen much faster, honestly. Um, the idea was to make a low cost. Uh, and really, the initial focus was mostly in countries um, like in India, China, uh, Africa, uh, where the number of radiologists is very few per million women. Yeah. And the um, so and the number of devices is very, very low. The number of mammogram machines is extremely low in these countries. And uh, so the idea was to um, to 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 just give a very low cost device that you could, lots of people have smartphones, even mm -hmm. in these countries. Uh, there's entrepreneurs in Africa and in Asia. And, you know, uh, it turns out I went to a conference in uh, 2011 in Geneva. And, it, and the whole idea of it was how can we take developing world innovations and help the, you know, the low and middle income countries. And it turns out that there's this entire uh, ecosystem of women, basically, who do all these amazing things. And so the idea was to, they then they use smartphones and they have solar recharging and they it's, it's like a whole. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a really amazing thing. It, make, it makes you ashamed, you know, of your gender. But, but uh you know, because it's yeah, it's virtually all women. But um, the idea was to get these devices to them to put on their smartphones and then they could do the breast exams and uh, ovarian and other things could follow suit. So that, that was the initial impetus for all of this. And so so that is um, so there are two things there. Right. So what what you have proven, I think, uh, initially was that if you use ultrasound imaging and we have quite a bit of variability there based on the, the human interpretations. Right. Um, and that, that seems to ultimately results in a, a you know, lower positive predictive value because they right. tend, to, tend to kind of around the false positive um, uh, position. 
for reducing the risk. Uh, and I think what about your data sh- uh, showed was, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, is that you can deploy artificial intelligence on those on that data, and the predictive power coming out of AI was actually better than humans. Right. So, so the the, the first thing was to to go to the ultrasound, and then right then the next thing is that well even with trained healthcare providers, the big problem with ultrasound is the variability due to not just interoperable, not, not just be across people, yeah, but yeah. even the same person, they get tired, they- uh, Get a bad day. They have a bad day. <laughs> yeah. they, they just did you know, 100 scans, they're kind of, so uh, in, in all of uh, medical diagnosis, you always have two numbers. You know, there's not just, it's not just accuracy, it's not just one number, you always have, uh, sensitivity, which is, you know, how many true positives do you get? And then yes. the specificity, which is how many true negatives do you get? So, you, and a lot of people uh, forget that frequently, you know, that if they're not in, the, in, in this industry. And the idea is that both numbers have to be good. Both numbers at the same time. You can't, you can always improve one number at the expense of the other. So the idea is, yeah. And then there's a third thing, which is the interoperability, the, the, the interoperator variability. So that um, an intra uh, operator variability so that yeah. within the same so uh, all of these problems um, the fact that we want to give this primarily to women you know midwives nurse type people and we want it to be just as good as if a professional did it and we want it not to vary between the times that they do it and not to vary uh, between one and, and another doing it right so the idea then hit us that why don't we use artificial intelligence and this was believe it or not before deep learning deep learning hit big time in 2012 and then it really took off in 14 you know when confluence yeah. neural nets hit so this was before that i i was hmm. in ai i was in neural nets before it was cool so we said let's use neural networks and what we'll do is we'll train the neural net to learn the best we we got one of the best radiologists or I think she's the best radiologist for breast cancer in the in the country and probably the world. And we trained on her her way of doing it. And the idea was to have uh, her name is Wendy, so it would be Wendy in a box. It was to have <laughs> <laughs> easily replicatable. Yeah, so that everybody could be as you know like ideally as good as Wendy. And so we trained on her way of, because, um, like most uh, medical. I don't want to generalize, but there's a lot of parts that are not algorithmic. You can't just say if, you know, there's not a, 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 uh, you know, syntax that you could follow an algorithm that you just say, well, if this, then that, then do this, you know, a rule-based type of system. It's much more like, well, if you feel this over here, then you go over there. So, But in this uh, case, uh, Rick, in this case, though, um, if you're using um, neural nets, uh, you actually uh, have labeled data, right? So you can take right. historical uh, information. And so even in the absence of Wendy's heuristics and expertise, you could still train a neural net with just uh, historical labeled data, right? Well, um, the way it works is, so that you have to, all these kinds of problems, you break down to two problems, is detection, yeah. detection and then identification. Uh-huh. So detection is, as you're scanning, say, the breast, you're seeing um, two-dimensional images at every point on the breast, and you're moving pretty quickly. So you're seeing a two-dimensional image, then you know a few fractions of a second, another one, another one, another one. Yeah. And as you're scanning through that, if you see a lesion, if you see uh, a calcification, if you see any kind of anomaly, you have to stop. So the first thing is detection. Do you see it now? Now seeing it, what does seeing it mean? You know, we, we being humans, we take advantage of, we, we take it for granted that, oh, seeing something and recognizing is very easy. It's yeah. not that easy, you know, for a computer. It's pretty hard. So first thing is, there's a neural net that has to do detection. It has to, it has to say, I see a lesion. I see a calcification. I see some anomaly. Stop. stop right. right. So right there, when you say, when you label it and you say you see it, that's a human decision. Right. Mm-hmm. It's not there's not a scientific, there's not a measurable. Uh, right. Know, we only see the ones that people see in quote. I'm doing air quotes. You can't see it. on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. it's what does C mean? You know, we it, it, it's like when AI started in the 1940s, people thought that seeing and talking and that would be really easy. It's the chess playing and, you know, the hard things. It's like, nope, the chess playing and all that was easy. 
relative, you know, it only took 40 yeah. years, but it's the seeing and the hearing and those that those nuanced very things. Much, much tougher problems. Much so harder. Wendy's, uh, Wendy's heuristics really. So, so she labels. You, she, yeah, first of all, she, machine uh, to, to basically pick up if Wendy is seeing it or not. So right. Yeah, okay. So, so, so you're going through hours and hours of, of uh, tapes and where she says, this is where you look, that, that's where you look. Now, the next thing is once you look there, then you dwell on it and you take a, you take a couple of still frames, you, you stare at it, you look for different, you know, th th there's a, a list, a Byrad's list. There's like a sort of a, a checklist that you look for, you know, is yeah. it speculated, is it lobulated, is it so, and you look for these things and then you score those things. Now that came uh, relatively recently, that, that kind of uh, algorithmic approach. Before that, a good, uh, you know, doctor, a good healthcare would look at it and say, yeah, this is cancer. This is not cancer. This Now, everything is usually broken, as you know, in decision theory, being an expert, that three things. So it's <laughs> like, this is definitely cancer. This is definitely not cancer. And I don't know what to do. So right. if you think it's cancer, or I don't know, there's another step. And the next step is a biopsy. Yeah. So uh, the idea is, uh, and, and lots of medicine I, I found, because I had medical device companies before this, and um, they're kind of, based on a lot of intuition and, and, and art, you know, maybe even more than science still. Right. So getting the person and getting the people who really know, uh, like there's radiologists, if you go to a hospital, there's radiologists that everybody who works in the hospital knows, go to that radiologist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it's like, there's, there's a difference. Uh, in, and we, we've seen that too in our studies with different radiologists. There's, there's uh, some people can read a lot of images and not make too many errors. Some people read slower and they make, you know, less, like there's all yeah, yeah. different, you know. So what you want is the best, right? You, you, you want to have uh, a, a model of how to do this the best possible way and how to do it in two steps, how to find uh, anomalies the best and then how to diagnose the best. So that study, the 2016 study, I'm finally getting to it after all this time. I don't know if we still have time to talk. Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> is what we did was we took um, some of the best, uh, some other uh, really top-notch radiologists. Uh, there's a um, mammography uh, quality uh, uh, assurance uh, organization that you have to be approved by. And these people were all approved. They all had 15, 20 years experience in doing mammography, you know, reading mammograms and, and ultrasound images for mammography. And so what we did was we compared our system, uh, the computer AI system to them. And that's the paper where we showed that the uh, computer system did better than the best one of them. Which... And there was something like 1300 samples. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, the, in this case, uh, both lower sensitivity and specificity are costly um, because if you have a, a false positive, then you have to go through biopsy and, you know, set of, uh, set of actions around that, which is right. also tend to be quite costly, right? So it is, um, so, so the, the, the typical metric, metrics uh, that we use to, to look at um, like the AUC of an ROC curve, right. what, what you've shown is that it is actually superior to uh, what experts uh, would have concluded on the same 1300. Right. And, and one, of, uh, one of the people in the study, one of the radiologists, she was um, the best performed. So like, again, each one has a different rock curve. Each individual uh, radiologist has their own rock curve. So some radiologists have a better, so the area under the rock curve is yeah. how good you are, right? So, you know, there's the two types of errors and you want to get one number, so you use the area and that's the, that's the convention in medicine. Yeah. And so um, there's actually people who have very good area under the curves, people who don't have such good. And what we did was the, the, uh, the AI system did better than the best person. So it found um, cancers that even she did not find uh, when she did the uh, the reads, you know herself, and yeah. so, uh, you know, what what that one thing that would lead you to believe is that well, if we gave this to the uh, midwives and to the, you know, uh, uh, people who weren't 
uh, healthcare professionals that it would do as good as a radiologist. So we actually had an NIH grant uh, with a foundation and the, the NIH as well. NIH gave us like $4 million and we studied this in Mexico and we gave it very, um, not, we didn't use a lot of training of the women at, they were students, they were medical students and nurses, yeah. things like that. And they did better than the radiologists because again, radi radiologists, mm. uh, you know, uh, they're doing a lot of things. They might be experts in lots of things. So th they're in general, they have an average performance. Wow. I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, so where does FDA on all of this, you know, as, as technology improves, uh, there is no question that we're going to see machines doing better in this type of things when there is a complex set of data, whether it's images or, you know, very highly multifactorial uh, type information. Um, you know, almost all the studies that we look at, the machines uh, appear to do a lot better than humans. So I wonder where the where is the regulatory um, thinking is uh, on these types of technologies now. So um, you know, back uh, around that time, I had a spinoff company which I have since uh, you know sold. But yeah. uh, so we 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 did the first FDA approvals for our uh, software, and I found the FDA to be uh, just uh, really helpful, really smart, um, and you know, 100% behind having this happen. They just want to make sure that it's done scientifically, it's done uh, statistically, you know, uh, uh, yeah. you know, correctly. So they were very, very helpful. Um, a lot of clinical trials have to be done and a lot of steps. And, you know, uh, it, it, will, it, it will happen. It is happening. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, and a lot, a lot of the problems surround the data, how to get the data, because, uh, you know, as you know, a privacy of uh, medical data, right. HIPAA compliance, and people are, uh, you know, there's a lot of um, extra layers of problems that you have to work through. Right. But I mean, we, we did manage all that. We did get uh, FDA approval for our device, and uh, and there's more, you know, we, we did it in a staged way, so we got approval to help, you know, in the beginning, and then eventually... I think it's it, before people trust in this country, before people trust just taking your uh, cell phone up and, uh, you know, doing yourself breast exam or prostate exam or whatever and getting your phone to tell you if you have cancer or not, we're probably still five, 10 years away. But um, so it, that is, it, it yeah. definitely will be coming. I yeah. Think. Yeah, yeah, it, it seems so. So that is what you're working on. So more recently, um, your IEEE paper, on-demand teleradiology using smartphone photographs as proxies for DICOM images. Right. So, so this is, you know, from a for in the field practical implementation perspective, this seems to make a, a significant difference, right? I mean, if you can take a picture of the image and that can be transmitted uh, maybe to a human expert, uh, maybe more more likely an AI machine, uh, and if it has reasonable, you know, predictive power, that seems like a very powerful concept. Right. So what what we ran into in the in the business, uh, we 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 were working with all the big uh, vendors in medical imaging, and. Uh, in various ways with different partnerships and everything. And what we found is, I mean, there's no, uh, you know, competition is fierce in this industry. Mm -hmm. the, the, there's no real uh, incentive to collaborate, to exchange data, to move data back and forth. So if you're working on a Siemens machine and you have a G, uh, an AI system that is on a GE machine or on a Philips or something, no, nobody is letting you easily move your images around or, you know, and especially my original goal was to do this in the developing world. So in the developing world, yes. you have people who may have uh, some old donated ultrasound machine uh, that's, you know, not uh, the most up to date, doesn't have uh, a lot of uh, software and things like that. Mm -hmm. or, and, and they might, well, they might even have an x-ray machine or something. And so what you want to do is, uh, and that's what they know how to use. I mean, you know, they're not trained on 
uh, some new, you know, if, if you sold a, a complete contained system to them, gave them uh, a handheld ultrasound, and it was just a few hundred dollars, and you plug it in your phone, and you got to run your software, and, you know, uh, that might be actually a bigger burden to these people than just using whatever they already have. So the idea was to get, and also the uh, interoperability here is, if I have one kind of machine, um, usually the people who make that machine will let you use their AI system that they're developing. And when <laughs> they're done with it, that's when you'll get your AI system. And the AI systems could really help open up the productivity all over the world and could help save lives because there's, um, even though in developing world countries, we have, um, we actually have a higher percentage of women who have breast cancer because they, you know, all different reasons they think, Yes. Uh, the diet and whatever, but uh, the, we actually have a low percentage of them who die. Mo in the other countries, they uh, they're catching up to us in terms of you know obesity and all the other things, and <laughs> breast cancer is another one. And at the same time, uh, their death rate is m much much higher because mm. they don't have uh, the medical uh, tools to help them to diagnose it early and then therapeutics. So. So the incidence rates are lower in developing countries, right? But um, post-diagnosis, um, their survival rates are a lot, lot lower. Right, right, okay. exactly. And uh, it's like uh, one of the experts explained this to us that I mean, these women usually they have to work and they have kids, and you know they're really busy. So until they have a a tumor that's as big as a grapefruit, they don't even come to the doctor. Mm -hmm. And then by the time you see it, it's like, yeah, you know, this is, you got, you know, a couple of weeks. So, uh, you know, and so it's, yeah. But the idea is if they had a way of, and because going to the doctor is a big thing and, you know, sure. so if you had, there, meanwhile, there's this network of uh, entrepreneurial women who, if they could, uh, you know, help each other and do it themselves and, you know, see if they got breast cancer early. So that, that's, that was the dream. And the idea is that uh, if they're using, um, you know, uh, whatever devices they're using now, maybe we could just, the first step of our long, uh, you know, goal would be to just, uh, they're already using smartphones for uh, microfinancing and business transactions, and they're, they're also yeah, smartphones are definitely there. Yeah, but do, can they self-administer, Rick, the um, the, the ultrasound? Can it uh, what? Can they self-administer the ultrasound? Oh no, so, no. So I mean, the ultrasound transducer, because that would be another FDA approval, and that would be like a, another, you know, to plug it. And and we have um, since 2011, there's plenty of competitors now yeah. who are doing this. So there's companies that have cheap ultrasound reducers that you put in your smartphone, they have the software, everything that, uh, you know, I set out to do is kind of getting done hmm. with, with this, uh, which is good, which is all that, you know, as an academic, uh, you know, that, that's what I wanted. I wanted to see it done. Right. Uh, some of it's not getting done because it's not profitable. I mean, hmm. selling, you know, getting to these uh, back uh, villages and stuff, there's not a lot of money there. So hmm. that's the thing that I'm still pushing on. And uh, the way I think to do that is, to, again, in tranches, because um, if, if they already have a smartphone, they could just download for free or very low some software, which then they could use any kind of old uh, ultrasound machine or x-ray machine, and then they can have the AI right there. So AI, yeah. uh, people who make AI modules can uh, make them all available just like any app would be available on your smartphone. And then the people in the trenches could use them for all different things. So, and you would, all you would need is the phone. And eventually I think uh, th there's a couple of companies, there's one in particular that got a tremendous amount of money. And uh, I think they're gonna, they probably are gonna be the first ones to get the uh, ultrasound transducer on mm. uh, your phone. And you know, it'll be a hundred dollars or $200 and then you just plug it in your phone and then it'll all, uh, you know, happen there. But the, the soft, you still have to use their software. So right. this gives an alternative, you know, competition, I think is the best way to keep the consumer in the, in the power, powerful position. So uh, being able to just use the phone with any device, I think is, is still uh, an option that we should be get, you know, should get on the market.
But there still has to be the image, right? right. So there still has to be an ultrasound machine uh, in, in proximity. So, right? So right. Before, before you can take a photograph, yeah. Right. I mean, the, the advantage of it, though, is that it doesn't have to just be ultrasound. Now it could be any kind of medical imaging device. Okay. And what it, it makes it, it makes a, uh, a free market economy. At a, right now, if you're a small company and you have an AI and you prove that you could read mammograms better, how do you get to the mammogram? There's no, there's no, there's no method because GE and Phillips and the guys who run it, they're not going to let you uh, get your AI there and the FDA and everything. So if you're on a platform where anybody could use anything, then, um, you know, I think progress will be uh, accelerated and uh, competitor, you know, the competition will open up. So it's more an intermediate step. It's sort of like the way Netflix used the, you know, CDs, uh, DVDs for video before they went to streaming. Yet the future, you know, as we set out 10 years ago is going to be the device. But right now people are bundling everything. And this is, you know, it's more of a business uh, thing. It's also uh, because it'll allow more competition. Yeah. yeah. It's also just, uh, it, it broadens the scope because each AI application takes a ton of work. So there's people who concentrate on working on just heart ailments, just bone fractions, just lung. And so if you want to use all of them, uh, and you know, for whether it's x-ray or CAT scan, or you have to go and go through the market and try to figure out, you know, which, and here again, you would just have an app and you, you could, uh, the doctors, it, it'll just accelerate the whole process. Yeah. Uh, you know. I mean, you're thinking here, you know, it, it's uh, so in developing countries where they don't have access to uh, screening, uh, it is typically much more delayed, uh, before, op, you know, from an optimum perspective before they actually find it. Right. Um, technologies like like this, even if you tu- tune it in such a way that, you know, you you reduce um, the, the false negatives, um, you know, it's still, it, it may still be um, a way to take the first step, right? It may not be the, the ultimate diagnosis, but it might actually uh, could get the, the people at the higher risk of having a problem uh, to a more, um, you know, a higher uh, accurate uh, diagnostic Right. So like in Mexico, we had women who traveled um, eight and 10 hours by, you know, bus and to come and be in our clinical study down there because they had no other option. In other words, in most countries, you might have to wait a year to get uh, a breast exam, you know, to go and see a doctor. So if you have productivity tools, that the doctor has productivity tools, because there might be one doctor for many, many miles, and they may be in this village, you know, in January, and then they go to this village in March, and then they go. And so if they have a tool that they can rapidly, um, you know, do the diagnostics on their phone, they can go through it much quicker. Yeah, do more women, and then more women can come lower, lower the cost, lower the, uh, you know, increase the productivity, so more women can get uh, looked at And eventually again, you know, we, we know, the long goal is to get the device onto the to the women, but right now the reality is that's not the way it works. There's healthcare providers, and you got to work with the system that exists. And you know what's the next step? Because right. you know there's so many, uh, you know. Uh, it, by the way, in other countries like in China and Japan, you could go right to ultrasound. So they have much more dense breasts uh, in a lot of these in, in Asia, and I think India too, mm-hmm. where you could go right to, uh, ultrasound because they don't have, uh, the standard care that we do. And also they, because for whatever reason, those uh, countries have, uh, and also the women are younger. Another yeah. strange thing is the women who get cancer, uh, are in a, in our, in our world, they're usually a little older, so they have dense breasts. So they go right to ultrasound. So mm-hmm. they're already using the ultrasound. So this would be a way to speed that up. And if a doctor could do 10 a day, now they could do 20 a day. So more, you know, women could be seen and it's the next step. You know, it's sort of like, um, and it's, it's something that I've done in my career several times. I start too far, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the, the ambitious, and then yeah. what you have to do is just back up and say, okay, what, what, you know, 
in 19, the late 70s, uh, I was working on uh, LASIK uh, eye surgery. Mm. And now you know what that is. But yeah. for 20 years, no one knew what that was. <laughs> it was like, you know, and all the patents have expired. So it's like, uh, the, the trick is timing. Like, yep. you know, 90% of, of getting things right is the, is the timing. And so I think going all the way to the ultrasound transducer on the phone, I do think that will be just like LASIK surgery did happen. I think that this will happen, but I think um, this is a step. And yeah. there's a bunch of cool problems and a, and a bunch of other um, things that will be allowed. Uh, another thing that I wanted to say back when we were talking about the decision uh, support uh, software, mm-hmm. and I know you're a decision guy, is that there's a thing in, in um, artificial intelligence that if you, can, if you have two different uh, decision-making devices, you could always fuse them. You could always combine them. If their errors are uncorrelated with each other, sure, there's sure. always a way to combine them so the, the, the final decision will be better. Yeah. So the idea of that study, one of the subtexts of the study, which was kind of hidden in the nerdy in between the lines, is that by using the doctor and the device and having the two opinions fused together, you could do better than either one. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And that's because in of, this case, it's almost... Yeah. Two, um, two completely different modalities, right? Exactly. So the power of that combination will be even, even higher, yeah. Right, and the, the things, and that's why we didn't want, we, we walked away from using BIRADS. So the BIRADS, which is the lexicon that the doctors are trained to look, you know, if, it's, if it has lobulations or speculations, the neural net doesn't do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the neural net finds its own things and it finds its own independent uh, assessment of what's going on. And now the problem is the doctor, the, the problem that you have is uh, the doctor doesn't believe it. It's like, I, I don't, I don't <laughs> yeah. see, I don't see that this cancer, I don't see it. It's not speculated. So the other, the other uh, contribution that we came up with is a saliency map. So what a saliency map is, is that each pixel in the image, you could think of it, it uh, basically when you use back propagation in neural nets, yeah. The back propagation is a chain rule of the, of the derivatives, and that tells you how sensitive, as you go all the way back to the pixels, how sensitive the partial derivatives of the score with each pixel. Yeah. So by looking at the sensitivity, you know that this pixel really, when I said it was cancer, it was these pixels here that really were very sensitive to that. Right. So now we highlight those pixels, and the doctor can look at it and go, oh, I see. I didn't <laughs> see that before, or that's, that's interesting. I never thought that that, you know. And maybe, so the, the fusing of uh, or augmenting human intelligence with artificial intelligence is, I find, um, a fascinating. Absolutely, you, yeah. That, there's a lot of opportunities there. In this paper, you also mentioned a denoising neural network. Right. What exact neural network preprocessor, you say? So what exactly is that? So um, it's, it's well, sometimes it's, it's like an autoencoder. So what happens is um, instead of training a, a neural net and saying, you know, uh, th- this is a cancer and this is not cancer or this, you know, is a tumor. So what another thing you could do is just say, OK, put an image in and get an, the same image out. Get the, but the image I put in could have glare on it, could have uh, shading on it, could be a, a poorly taken defocused photograph. And what comes out is a focused photograph. Yeah. And in the middle, what you do is you reduce the dimensionality uh, as you're going through the uh, convolutional encoder, as you go through the neural network, you're going down, you're reducing the dimension of the space, you're reducing the number of numbers that you need to represent the image, and then you go back up. So what happens is you can train uh, a denoiser to get rid of those extra degrees of freedom that bring in uh, random noise or bring in distortion. So that, that's what we did. So that when a person takes a photograph with their phone, there could be glare, or you could be geometrically distorted at an angle, or you could have uh, all sorts of aberrations, you know, keystoning and different things that you get. And all those things are uh, inverted out by using a deep learning, uh, rather than mathematically uh, correcting and doing image restoration and trying to figure out the point spread function of each blur function and, and inversing it, which is an ill-posed problem. We use uh, this uh, neural network. To, so it's to... a bit like the the lower layers of a of a deep neural network. Um, well, it, it 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 yeah, it, it starts that way, and then yeah. it goes down to it reduces the dimensionality, and then it goes back up. 
So it's okay. actually a, uh, a, a deconvolution, you know, it, it yeah. goes uh, to a smaller uh, representation and then it goes back up to the bigger representation. And the idea is that you get, when you get to the, uh, it's sort of like principal component analysis or reducing the dimensionality of a space down to the most essential latent variables that you need to represent that yeah. image. And then those variables do not include the noise, which are the, uh, the unnecessary, irrelevant, you know, uh, shading and uh, stray illumination and distortion. So when, when you get back to the image, it's now a, a pristine image. Right. Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, you know, seems like an area where computers, um, artificial intelligence in general, is going to have a lot of impact, I think, because, um, you know, when you have very complex images, and each image has, in some sense, its own characteristics um, because it's the matrix and it's a combination of things that really ultimately uh, makes a decision uh, for the interpreter. Um, I think humans are not that great <laughs> to do, right. uh, you know, to identify uh, patterns, uh, combinations of patterns uh, that they haven't really been trained on. Uh, whereas we are getting, you know, with improving technology, machines are getting better and better at it. So what is your expectation, Rick? And if you look forward the next five years, what do you think um, we will be at uh, five years from now from a diagnostics perspective? Um, increasingly, you know, we, we find even typically MR data like demographics, family history, surgical history, medications, lab results, are good enough pre-diagnosis to assign a reasonable probability that the patient is going to progress into different disease states like hypertension or type 2 diabetes or something like that. And, you know, that is, that is almost as good as what a human would, would conclude. Uh, and, and that's not very complex data even. You know, humans are supposed to be very good at that compared to computers. But even there, we are finding computers to be reasonably good. So, so, so what is your expectation five years from now? How would AI change the diagnostic arena for healthcare? Well, yeah, right now you have um, many, you know, I would say like small uh, groups, you know, say working on breast cancer, working on hypertension, working on bones, working on lung. And what's going to happen is these are all be integrated together. And there are big companies like IBM, you know, Watson and things yeah. where they're looking at you know, in genetic data, you know, um, they're, they're following up on how patients are being treated and doing prediction. And the huge, huge problem, just like the genome, you know, uh, evolved, eventually what has to happen is all these parts have to come together. So like even our little study, what we did was we, when, a, when a doctor detects uh, breast cancer, they really don't just look at the image. So they're looking at the woman's age, you know, the... Uh, the vitals of, of the women, the, the, uh, all the different statistical information that helps them uh, form, form their diagnostic opinion. Yeah. And right now, uh, AI is being done in these siloed ways due to the data privacy issues and uh, just due to, you know, the finite, uh, you know, amount of time and resources that each, each entity has, even, even IBM. And I think what's going to happen is as we integrate more and more things together and as we work through the, uh, the problems of uh, data privacy and people become less fearful of it and maybe we work at some legal who owns the data and, you know, all this kind of thing, that what's going to happen is the whole body, the whole, uh, all the information will be available and we'll have, uh, we'll find correlations with things uh, that were un unexpected. So the human yeah. brain has prejudices, right? So when we're looking, when we're discovering things, we evolve to find, like what you were saying before about uh, the image restoration application that we're doing. Yeah. It's easy to camouflage things. And uh, there's also, the, you know, visual tricks that you could fool humans. We're not, uh, we're not perfect by any means in our the ability to, you know, uh, make sense out of our senses. But uh, computers, like we said before, Computers have a different way of, uh, uh, you know, using language as best I can. But it's yeah. the, the AI algorithms are looking at different things and using different kinds of logic. And what we, what we really want to do is augment that. So we may find, uh, you know, genetic patterns that uh, we could never see with one mind. One mind could never look at it 
and see that this complex pattern that, that went across all these diseased patients was there because it's just not a linear correlation type of pattern. It's a very nonlinear, very dynamic type of pattern that right. humans are not made to see. So I think we're gonna, I think, you know, this, this will lead us into a new era of uh, really of science, of scientific thinking, to tell you the truth. Yeah. And the good thing about computers, obviously, is that, um, you know, they don't complain and <laughs> they don't get distracted either. So, yeah, the, the results are more uh, more uniform uh, at the very least. So I want to conclude um, with uh, something that you wrote on uh, on the medium uh, recently uh, about startups, you know, uh, where the, the venture capital industry uh, don't really um, look at uh, sort of the companies in the middle uh, who are yet to yet to get revenue, but almost you know at the at the threshold of a, of a scale up, uh, and they tend to tend to die there. Um, what are your your thoughts on you know how this could be changed and uh, what policy direction uh, might be helpful? Yeah, I mean, and this is actually an extension of what we've been talking about because. Um, you know, trying to go too far, you know, so 10 years ago, trying to go all the way to the ultrasound uh, AI system that would uh, replace uh, mammography was probably naive. You know, I mean, the medical, uh, you know, infrastructure is set up the, you know, the way it is and yeah. it's profitable. So the idea is that if, if you have a startup company, if, you, if, you, if you're a professor in a university, so the first part of the, the article I talk about, there's a new uh, Congress is trying to pass this Endless Frontier Act, which would uh, put a lot more money into the pure R&D <clears throat> and, and trying to get it further along, you know, trying to get to things like, you know, new ways to diagnose cancer and cure cancer and, and things yeah. like that. But then the problem arises that, okay, you have something that's brand new, it's, it's radically different. And um, maybe, you know, you yourself and some friends put in some money and you, you show the feasibility, you make a little device. The, the, the problem is, is that you can't get venture capitalists, you can't get uh, investors because it's too risky. Yeah. And, and honestly, uh, you know, what I've learned now a couple of times is that usually it takes 10 or 20 years. And venture capitalists, um, they form an LLC. Their entire fund only lasts 10 years. They have to exit. They want an exit. Yeah. They're, not, they're not looking to help the world. You know, that's like, yeah. That's that's low on their list. It's it's when do I get my profit? The faster and the more profit, the better you are. So how do we in a capitalistic society that's so profit oriented? How do we get money? It's better for society. It's better for all of us to fund these things. Mm -hmm. So what I'm working on, and and uh, you know trying to push, is that um, you know there was a program back in 2001 called the New Markets Venture Capital Program, mm -hmm. and uh, the idea was that, uh, you know, that social uh, entrepreneurship is this idea that you can have multiple bottom lines. It doesn't have to be money alone, just profit yeah. alone. It could be social benefit. It could be environmental benefit. And there's, you know, even others. So the idea is, how do we, in a pure capitalistic society, how do we get those, uh, you know, uh, private enterprises not going to invest in making a better environment? you know, right. environmental changes and, and making uh, like all, all the reason that I had to change the scope of my company and go towards the reduction of biopsies was because no investor wants to invest in helping the developing world. There's no money mm -hmm. there. You mm -hmm. know, it's like, yeah, those women are dying. And, you know, so the <laughs> idea is uh, governments really should allocate long term money to help these uh, projects. And they do with the R&D. But R&D is only part of the problem. You know, venture right. capitalists put in more money than our entire R&D budget is $130 billion. Uh, venture capitalists in the United States put in more than $130 billion. And that's the way it is because commercializing something, you know, innovating something, making a product out of something is a very expensive, very arduous, different skills. And professors aren't going to do it. Universities aren't going to do it. So yeah. what we need to do is build up this innovation class, this... and just like there's a National Science Foundation, there should be a National Innovation Foundation. Right. right. That's a great, yeah, it's a great way to think about it. I mean, you have a concept here 
um, social return, um, which I think is a great way to think about it, right? So th- these are uh, activities um, that a private company will not uh, will not get involved because the the profits are going to be distributed uh, to society, and so they can't they can't really get the the financial returns from that. Um, and so nobody nobody jumps in first to do these types of things, uh, and, and so we kind of open up a big vacuum. Yeah, the 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 basic R and D is there, the feasibility perhaps even there, but to take it to the next step, that could have a significant effect on society. Uh, there is a gap there in terms of funding, right? Right. And also organizations, because yeah. the the it's not just it will be distributed, which people lose interest. You know, nobody uh, like I've run centers in universities where we have multiple industry partners, and the problem with that is everybody owns it, so no, so nobody owns it, so nobody wants it. That that's the first problem. The other problem is a lot of these things take a really long time. You know, the internet kind of came about through uh, a couple of serendipitous. You know, was I worked on it back as a grad student when it was done for uh, national security reasons. And then, you know, you, everyone knows the story now, but these things evolve uh, haphazardly. What if we had a group of people, just like there are professors, there's thousands of professors doing R&D. What if there were thousands of people who are constantly looking at the outputs of our R&D and trying to take a longer term view? They don't have to get immediate profit. They have uh, an infrastructure, just like professors do with a make things where they actually right. take it, you know? So I don't have it worked out, obviously some, you know, but I think that's what, in order to get the environmental problems addressed, in order to get social problems addressed, we need some other part of our society that's not so quarter by quarter profit uh, driven. It, you know, it's like our healthcare uh, yeah. industry. It doesn't yeah. work. It's not a, it's not a free market. Yeah, it's also a lot of diverse problems that are uncorrelated. So it is risky. Each one of them is risky. Uh, but if we can pull that into a much larger risk pool, uh, society can diversify that risk pretty well. Exactly. Right? And that sounds like we don't have mechanisms to do that um, effectively. And it's a, it's a great area to to think about i know that you're involved in some of those um you know with your activities outside the university um so this this uh, this has been great uh, rick i really appreciate the time that you spend with me yeah it's been great fun uh, <laughs> and i think you're doing a great job i, I love what you're doing thanks so much and uh, good luck with everything that you do you too take care take care bye